The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We read from the Old Testament, from the book of Ruth, and the third chapter, Ruth chapter 3. Some of you may have been working through this in winter Hebrew, and you'll recall it very well, and you will have committed to memory not only the English translation, but the Hebrew text as well. So Ruth, in the third chapter, verse 1, One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes, Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Amen. May God bless to us this reading of his truth. Harry was going to church one Sunday. He pulled out of his driveway in his smart two-seater sports car. It was raining heavily, and it showed no sign of relenting. And as he turned the corner... He saw three figures huddled under a single umbrella beside the bus stop. All three figures were familiar to them because they all attended Harry's church. The first was old Mrs. Smith. She was well over 70 and suffered great pain from her rheumatism and arthritis. And it was always worse for her in the damp weather. The other person was Dr. Roberts, the the local family doctor, And Harry, as good as owed this man his life, because last year when he had been on holiday in the tropics, he had picked up a rare and a dangerous disease, and Dr. Roberts had successfully treated it. And the third person in line was Julie. And Harry had entertained a burning interest in Julie ever since she had come to live in his area, and especially since she had begun to attend his church but as yet he hadn't had the chance to really get close to her. 
So Harry glanced at the solitary passenger seat beside him and thought, what will I do? He had only a few seconds to make his decision, and with an impressive screech of the brakes, he drew up beside the bus stop. He handed the keys to Dr. Roberts, lowered Mrs. Smith into the passenger seat, and then with a modest wave, he bid them goodbye as he huddled close to Julie under the umbrella. <laughs> he prayed earnestly that the bus would be even later than normal that particular Sunday morning. You know how it is in matters of romance that meeting the right person is almost invariably the result of a happy collusion between good fortune and good sense. Or if you want to put it in Christian theological terms, it's the result of that mysterious interaction between divine providence and human responsibility. God put Julie by the bus stop. Harry had to work out how to get under the umbrella beside her. And it's often like that, that it's this cooperation between God's sovereign control of events and our pers personal initiative that forms a necessary background, not just to a successful romantic life, but to the life of faith generally. And I think there are a few more charming examples of that interplay than this story of Ruth. You know how Naomi and Ruth have returned to Bethlehem. From Ruth's point of view, it was a crazy decision to stick with Naomi. Judah was a dangerous place and Naomi was poverty stricken. It would be at least six months before the plot of land that Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, had owned, before that plot of land would produce a crop. And in the meantime, these two women would have to survive by begging. And more than that, it was ruinous as far as Ruth's marriage prospects were concerned. She was a foreigner. She had no dowry. And there may even have been a question mark over her fertility, since in 10 years of marriage, she had borne Naomi no grandchildren. So that Ruth and Naomi look set to share their loneliness indefinitely. Yet we all know that the story of Ruth has a happy ending, that against all the odds, Ruth will find a husband, Naomi will become a grandmother, and more startling even than that, the family line will become a royal dynasty with King David and eventually King Jesus. This is a classic rags to riches romance. It's the story of how Cinderella met her prince and how they live happily ever after. But notice how the narrator deliberately draws together these two concurrent influences that shape the outcome of the story, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God puts Boaz by the bus stop. Ruth has to find a way to put herself under the umbrella. And the key verse in the story is verse 12 of chapter 2. Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There are all embracing divine providential wings that are protecting Ruth. At the end of chapter one, you remember how Naomi had complained about the, the cruel misfortune that had befallen her. All her misery was God's fault. And no less than four times in that chapter, she affirms that it's the Lord who is responsible for all that has gone wrong in her life. 
But Ruth the Moabitess would never have come to Bethlehem. She would never have known the God of Israel. She would never have played the special part she did in the family tree of King David and of King Jesus, were it not for the apparent misfortune that had befallen Naomi. God had indeed caused the cruel tragedy in her life, but that was only a necessary preparatory move in a cosmic scheme of salvation. So mind-blowing, so grand in its conception that it would have defeated the imagination of our sacred author. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. We've just sung words of William Cowper's. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. You could say that the story of Ruth begins with a lamentable error of judgment on Elimelech's part. Under pressure of the famine, he chose to go and live amongst a nation of idolaters in Moab. No pious Jew would ever have made that kind of choice. Yet if he had not made that choice, the story of Ruth would never have got beyond chapter 1, verse 1. And many of us torture ourselves with vain regrets. If only I hadn't made that mistake. I really lost out by that act of folly. And yet nowhere in the Bible do we ever read of human mistakes obstructing God's purpose. That the Bible constantly testifies to how God, by master strokes of consummate skill, achieves his purpose, sometimes precisely by means of our apparent mistakes. What was Judas's betrayal of Jesus if it was not a mistake? Yet God providentially causes all that to fit together so that through the arrest and the trial and the death of Jesus, the world is saved. Regrettable as mistakes may be, as Kuiper puts it, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And if you follow this story through the next two chapters, you'll see how this divine providence that so savagely devastated Naomi's life was all the time actually working things out, not only for her good, but for the good of Ruth and for the good of the people of God as a whole. Notice the hints which the author drops into his narrative in order to alert us to the way in which God is working sovereignly in Ruth and Naomi's situation, that Naomi is related to Boaz. Chapter 2, verse 1. A relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Well, why mention that? He could have told us about Boaz's connection to Naomi's husband later in the story, and it might have had greater climactic effect. But he puts it in here because he wants us to understand how God was working, even though Ruth was unaware of it. That the man of Ruth's dreams is there, waiting in the wings, just like Julie at the bus stop. And then Ruth gleans in Boaz's field. Later in chapter 2, Ruth goes out to glean the loose grains of barley that have fallen in the field behind the harvesters. The poor were allowed to do that in Israel. But whose field does she happen to select for her gleaning? The field of Boaz. She doesn't know him. She has never seen him. But we, the readers, have the privileged information about who he was. The hidden hand of providence is at work. And then eventually Boaz meets Ruth. 
as if, as if to confirm our suspicion, who shows up at midday to see how things are going? It's the man himself. Some of us uh, still remember Ray Dillard teaching Hebrew here. And this particular book, and in verse 4, it says, Behold, <coughs> the NIV translates it just then. And uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Ray Dillard's uh, dynamic equivalent for the Hebrew word was a colloquial American translation. Well, what do you know? It's full of surprise and wonder. Just then, what do you know? Who shows up? And the author wants us to see divine sovereignty at work. Humanly speaking, it's all a fortuitous encounter. Two pairs of eyes meet for the first time across a harvest field on a summer's day. On the one hand, a penniless widow doing her best to retain her dignity and pay her bills. On the other hand, a handsome hero, considerably older, but a man of standing in the community. And to judge from the way he greets his workers, he's also a man of faith. This is not mere chance. God's hand is in it all. God brings them together. And that really takes us to the other side of the story, which is the human responsibility side. That Boaz had no idea that Ruth considered him to be an eligible prospect. How could she let him know? It's not going to be easy, given the constraints of oriental etiquette and protocol. And you know how a number of commentators have drawn attention to the relevance of the story of Ruth to the whole feminist debate. And it's not difficult to see why. Ruth is quite an audacious lady. She doesn't need a man to tell her what to do. Indeed, she comes close to telling Boaz what to do. She's no shrinking violet who will sit in the background waiting for God to drop blessings into her lap. She will, by her own enterprise and energy, work for the fulfillment of God's purpose in her life. And with Naomi's help and counsel, she works well. And if you read chapter 3 carefully, you get the impression that Naomi is an old hand in these matters. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. Don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. First, there's the beauty treatment. You know, a little touch of Chanel number five. The little black number that you look so nice in. And nighttime's so much more romantic than the day, don't you think? And you need to catch Boaz in a nice, relaxed mood. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, go and uncover his feet and lie down beside him. And this approach by Ruth is decidedly risque. By approaching a man in the pitch dark, she's gambling not just with her dignity, but also with her chastity. If he chose to take advantage of the situation, she would have no defense. What on earth was she do, doing lying beside a man at that time of night? Everybody knew what people got up to after the harvest Thanksgiving party. It was all a huge risk. How on earth would this situation ever unfold? And yet it isn't always enough to wait passively on God's providence. Sometimes we have to take responsibility. Sometimes we have to step out in faith. Or else we will forfeit the blessings that God is only too willing to bestow. And Ruth displays great initiative here. Who are you, asked Boaz. I am your servant. Ruth, she said, spread the, uh, the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. 
Spread the corner of your garment over me is, as you know, deliciously ambiguous. On the one hand, it's a euphemism for marriage. Spread the corner of your garment over me means marry me. But on the other hand, the, the word for garment or skirt is actually the same word that is translated wings back in chapter 2, verse 12. Spread your wings over me, says Ruth. You remember what Boaz had said to Ruth back in chapter 2? May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And do you see what Ruth is saying? You prayed for my blessing, Boaz, since I had sought the protective wings of Jehovah. Well now, Boaz, let's face it. You're my dead husband's kinsman. Isn't it up to you to do more than pray for me? Isn't it your responsibility under God's covenant to redeem me from my helplessness? Don't you see, Boaz, that you're the answer to your own prayer? That the protective wings of Jehovah are your wings? Spread them over me, Boaz. Marry me. What an audacious woman. And yet, marry her he does. And the lesson from this story of Ruth, I believe, is that faith is both passive and active. It's passive in the sense that we have to be patient for God to act. Faith means trusting the divine purpose. It means contentment. It means waiting. But faith is not complacent or idle or negligent. There's all the difference in the world between trusting God and twiddling your thumbs. Faith demands action, enterprise, and endeavor. Faith sometimes requires us to take risks. And Ruth is a lesson to us, not only in that passive waiting on God, but also in that active launching out upon God. I think she illustrates the tension between the patience of faith on the one hand and the gamble of faith on the other. That God has placed us in a world where he is undeniably sovereign. But it's also a place in which we are meaningfully free. We are not disposable pawns on a chessboard. We're not puppets manipulated by hidden strings. We are voluntary agents able to make real and responsible choices. But we're not masters of our own fate either. Our liberty is constrained within the circle of his permission and his loving oversight. And we sometimes wonder how those two truths can be true. But the Bible insists that it is the case. God chooses to work his sovereign will by means of our decisions. And he has built our decisions, both good and bad, into his cosmic plan. Think about prayer. How does it work? God knows what he's going to do. He has an unchangeable plan. So how can prayer change anything we ask? It changes things only because God has chosen to work out his will through our prayers. Prayer is the major way in which he involves us in his plan. We're not passive pawns. We're active and intelligent collaborators with his purpose. And the amazing thing is that God calls on us to pray, and we pray as we pray, his great and good purposes are brought to pass. Or if you think about guidance, you may be single. You may long for a marriage partner. Well, then let the story of Ruth teach you to wait for God to put the right person by the bus stop. 
but let it teach you also the importance of decision and initiative, that when opportunity presents itself, be ready to put yourself under the umbrella. Or think about salvation. The Bible says every soul was predestined before the foundation of the world. Yet how does the divine purpose find fulfillment? It finds fulfillment as we actively repent and believe the gospel. We're required to make a decision. There must come a time when we leave the old way of living and we follow Christ. And the Bible calls that conversion. And we understand that that can only take that step of commitment. We can only take that that turning towards him in repentance and faith because God has first worked in our hearts, drawing us to Christ and showing to us our need of him. Or think about the cross. The Bible says that Jesus dies in a way that was planned in eternity before the worlds were made. He was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Yet in Gethsemane, he struggles and wrestles in prayer not my will, but your will be done. Was the will and purpose of God in doubt? Was Jesus just a pawn in a cosmic chess game? Not at all. Yet it came about as Jesus voluntarily chose to give himself to death on the cross. And in the most marvelous and mysterious way, divine sovereignty and human responsibility intersect at the cross of Christ. And friends, that's the pattern of the Christian life. It's all about walking by faith. It is not being paralyzed by some morbid fatalism or sitting around saying, que sera, sera. Nor is it to be driven by some anxious kind of self-reliance, thinking that it's all up to us. The Bible says that we're to live lives of patience and enterprise. Like Ruth, we are to live by faith. And yes, you can trust your sovereign and gracious Father, who will work out all things according to his own pattern and will and plan. And it's about taking that step of faith and it's about following in the way of faith, believing that God will lead you and guide you as you trust him, as you follow him, and as you look to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in all our lives. You're working out your great plan and purpose for us. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to walk by faith and not by sight. And sometimes, Lord, we find that a bit scary and a bit frightening. And we ask that you will so increase our faith and our trust in you that we will be able to step out, to take the risks, to live in an enterprising way so that your purposes will be accomplished. We give you thanks for our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, who trusted and believed and followed, and who is our great example. O oh Lord, work in all our hearts today so that we may trust you and follow you each step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.